Tonight is the night of the new moon. Also, as I understand it, this is the time of Chinese New Year. It's quite a, a contrast uh, to the Western New Year when we had uh, New Year's Eve, uh, December 31st, here in the temple. It was filled to bursting. This is the local convention of December 31st, January 1st is a major social turning point, significant turning point in the year. And in this particular region of the planet, the Chinese New Year doesn't have so much uh, significance. In China, of course, for more than a billion people there, it's a big occasion, very special, colorful, lots of ceremonies, lots of red coloration, decorations everywhere. And the Chinese community around the planet, all the people of Chinese ancestry all over the earth, it's a big special time. But these kind of things I, I like to contemplate. What's important for one group is completely unnoticeable or insignificant for another group. What is a time of great significance and say, power and uh, symbolism in one group is invisible to another. And so I feel this is very useful to contemplate. I like to look at these kind of things myself, particularly traveling on a plane or a train. You know, the same kind of, of sense of, you know, I have no idea who these people are. Uh, traveling on a train down to London or going on the London Underground. You know, I have no idea who these people are, what their names are, what work they do, where they're going, all the important things in their lives. Uh, flying on a plane, say, back from Thailand at the end of the year, don't have a clue as to who you're sharing this space with, what their names are, where they come from, what's important to them. Of course, we, we share a common humanity. We're all breathing and living in the, the human world. We have bodies and, and minds. Obviously, we have those things in common. But the day-to-day -day things that are important to us, our, our work, our relationships, where we live, it's unknown. It's out of reach, out of the scope of knowledge. I find that's a very skillful way of keeping a perspective on the things that seem so important, so significant, so real in our own lives, here at Amravati, or visiting here, or those who come to help for the winter retreat, and whether we're a monastic or a layperson living here, we can get so taken up with the importances of our particular story, our background, our duties, our relationships, the people that we get along with, the people we don't get along with, the progress of things in our world can seem so solid and so real. And when we have these kind of occasions to step outside of that, get a bit of a perspective on it, is to see, well, it's so important to me, but it's completely insignificant or unknown to the other people who come on site, like the people who are working on the new buildings, the animals that live here, the squirrels and the blackbirds and magpies. The creatures that we share this space with, they have no clue about the washing up rotor. They don't know who chant the recitation of the precept on the next moon day. It's nothing in their scope. It doesn't have any meaning. There's no traction there. I feel this is really useful to contemplate, especially when we're feeling something is very large, very significant, to say, well, from the point of view of a person passing by on St. Margaret's Lane or the 
fellow driving the JCB, uh, digging the trenches on the, the building site. From the point of view of the magpies and the squirrels and the pigeons, how does this big concern, this big issue, this big excitement or this big problem of mine, how does it look? What sort of shape does it have? And in that moment, then things are seen from a different perspective. I enjoy that. I find a a great spaciousness that comes from that and stepping outside the usual sphere of reference, the points of reference that we have. They look at our life from somebody else's point of view, another being, another person, another creature's point of view. There's this shift in the heart that recognizes, oh yes, of course, (laughs) what's big for me is invisible or very small for another being. Aha, look at that. So in that moment, things are a bit more balanced, I would say. Things fall into a much more skillful perspective. New Year ceremonies, New Year traditions, across different cultures, whether it's Chinese New Year or the Western New Year or the ceremonies and and traditions, customs around New Year. It's a lot to do with beginning again, having a fresh start, having a a new beginning. So the year of the rabbit, I believe, is just beginning right now. (laughs) So that the previous year is behind and then now the, the new one begins. On the Western New Year of uh, January the 1st, it's customary for people to make New Year's resolutions, so to have a, a new beginning. It's determined to have a dry January, give up alcohol for January, very admirable. Could include the other 11 months as well, <laughs> if possible. Or also just for so many people, uh, three or 400 people coming to visit Amravati on New Year's Day, coming to receive blessings and to have a blessing cord tied on the wrist and to begin the new year in as wholesome a way as possible, a fresh start, coming to the temple on the first day of the year, establishing the faith and commitment, uh, the recollection of the triple gem, to uh, begin again, to have a, a fresh start. So as a human community, we have many and various ways that we go about this because We recognize, not just within the Buddhist sphere, but all around the world in many different cultures, I would say, as a recognition that we get stuck. We get stuck in uh, patterns of thinking, we get stuck in unhelpful attitudes, in beliefs and concerns and obsessions that are obstructive, burdensome, stressful. And so... A new year and change like this is a way of having a new beginning because it's so easy for us just to be carrying on in the same customary modes with our habits, our beliefs, our attitudes, the way we judge ourselves, the way we judge the world around us, the way we judge the people near us in our family or people that we work with, people that we live with. To shake that up, to break out of those old habits, to change the the perspective we take the opportunity of a new year a new beginning to refresh those attitudes to dismantle the things that are unskillful unhelpful and to reshape to set new intentions in place like as we recite in the 10 subjects for frequent recollection by one who has gone forth i will strive to abandon my former habits it's like a setting an intention. Yeah, many former habits are not liberating. They're not helpful. They're based on laziness or fear or restlessness or a sense desire, 
aversion, selfishness. So those former habits, they're recognized as being destructive, and it's also recognized they can be let go of. We don't have to be that way. I should strive to abandon my former habits. It's rather like taking down the old buildings. Metasom has gone, and Lotus House has gone, the Sala's gone, and the library, but the Bodhi House, the garages, striving to abandon our former habitations, not just habits, our dwelling places, to abandon our former dwelling places, to replace them with more skillful, more beneficial, more suitable living spaces. But it's also good to recognize in letting go of our former habits, those deeply entrenched beliefs and attitudes and fears and hopes and judgments, our opinions, that just like with taking down the building, there's a demolition process. It can be done skillfully and carefully, or it can be done recklessly and with a lot of damage and waste along the way. Taking down the old buildings, I think is a good example, dismantling what we could, saving what we could of the materials, the cedar cladding and the timbers that can be reused, the tiling panels and such like that can be reused, bricks and, and tiles, stacking them up for future use. So we take apart our old structures, keep what we can that might be useful, but the, the rest is gone. This kind of skillful demolition, skillful disruption of the old to make way for the new. It's happening on the physical level. You know, right now there's a huge pile of earth. They're digging up the ground to make the space for the pipes and cables and such like, all the infrastructure to go into the ground and making a start on the foundations. There's a huge pile of earth that's been dug up. So the things are disrupted but disruption with a purpose in order to establish something more beneficial, more skillful, more useful to us. I would say that say having a retreat schedule, the times of formal practice, keeping the precepts as a layperson, as a monastic, we recite our monastic rule for the bhikkhus, the siladara, the novices, anagarikas, anagarikas, laypeople taking the eight precepts. We establish these structures as a kind of skillful deconstruction of our former habits. We take on the precepts, we take on the routines of the retreat, keeping the schedule, following the various disciplines of the retreat, keeping as much of a quality of silence and restraint as possible. These are the, the kind of skillful ways of deconstructing our former habits, of just speaking recklessly, following our impulses to get what we like, get away from what we dislike, make critical comments about others or getting lost in essential pursuits of one kind or another. So the precepts, the routines, the structures and the dutanga practices that we follow, these are all crafted to be that kind of a skillful deconstruction of former habits and the establishment of more skillful habits, more skillful structures uh, in terms of the way we speak, the way we act, the attitudes that are here within us. The Dutanga practices in particular in our monastic tradition, that these are crafted to particularly help us go against the strong instinctual patterns associated with sleep, with food, with personal space, with physical comfort, 
And so that these need to be used with skill, with say discernment and not with ridiculous idealism or things get out of balance. We are harming ourselves or causing confusion and difficulty for ourselves or the people around us. But these are particularly crafted practices. They're just eating one meal a day to having a strict discipline around sleeping and taking the practice of not lying down for some time. These kind of practices that are allowed by the Buddha and say cultivated within this tradition there, eating all your food from one bowl. When people go out on arms round, just eating the food that's given in the village. These kind of practices are designed to skillfully deconstruct our habits of taking refuge in food, taking refuge in sleep, taking refuge in a particular dwelling place, particular shelter, physical comfort, and so on and so forth, not out of a kind of crazy asceticism or trying to cause ourselves pain or thinking that more discomfort is going to burn off bad karma, but rather to cultivate a kind of adaptability, a robustness, a simplicity, so that we're not pulled around by those former habits of trying to always seek the most comfortable situation, trying to always have exactly the food that we like and as much as we like of the things that we prefer or having the favoured dwelling place exactly as we would like it, but rather cultivating the heart of adaptability, just reflecting on a dwelling as a shelter for one night, a roof over the head for one night. The food that we get was just enough to cure the daily disease of hunger, to take away the feelings of hunger and to keep the body alive and energized. It's good enough. Enough sleep to rest the body, to help it stay alive and in a reasonable state of health, not indulging in excessive hours of sleep and not taking refuge in unconsciousness, just checking out and dozing. So these are all ways, particularly for our sun retreat, the monastic community, in group practice, as we have been having for the full schedule for the first couple of weeks, and now just a half-day group practice and people going into solitary retreat. These are good things to explore, to, say, pick up these uh, Dutanga practices. And if you're a junior person, Anagarika, Anagarika, or Navaka, it's a, or Majima also. It's a, important to check in with a mentor or the senior Ajahn to check if you want to take on one of these kind of Dutanga practices to get permission and to get some feedback whether the Ajahn thinks it's a good idea or not. But I do recommend. I, I find I, I learned a huge amount from these kind of practices over the years just for the sheer simplicity they impart, the ease and spaciousness that content if you get a lot, you're content if you get a little, you're content if you get the things that you like, content if you get the things you don't like. You're content if you have an ideal living space, and you're content if you have one that's less than ideal. The heart is at ease, independent of circumstances. And that's the, the purpose of the Dutangas. Forget exactly where it is in the scriptures, but there's one place, as I recall, that the, the Buddha said there are five reasons why people might pursue the Dutanga practices. One is because everybody else does it around you. <laughs> Another is because you think it's going to be automatically burning off bad karma. 
another is to compete with the other monastics, to make yourself feel better than they are. Another is to impress the lay people. And the fifth is for the sake of developing simplicity. So of these five, only the fifth one is worth following. All the others, foolish and obstructive. And I feel that that simplicity, adaptability, is a great treasure, a wonderful blessing. During this three months that we have of the winter retreat time, it's a time that is very suitable, very appropriate to explore some of these kind of practices and to see that in that spirit. This is a way of taking down the old inefficient structures, <laughs> the energy-wasting structures uh, like the old buildings, taking them down and replacing them with new, skillful, more efficient structures with the purpose, particularly, of cultivating adaptability, simplicity, and fewness, fewness of needs, and ease of heart in all circumstances. Also this time, uh, middle of January, has been a big gathering for our communities at uh, the main monastery, Wat Bapong, in northeast Thailand and around the world to recollect our great teacher, Lumpo Cha, and his life, his legacy of Dhamma practice and the standards of Dhamma Vinaya that he established, the communities that have grown up under his guidance around the world. As we did here, we make a special effort to decorate Lumpajar's shrine with extra flowers and make a particular reference, recollection of him, and these are gestures of reverence, of gratitude, of devotion. These are very, very appropriate. Wandana, that sense of celebration and devotional demonstration of one's heartfelt appreciation, gratitude, and love for a great teacher. One of the, the things that I always like to reflect on is the best way to honor a teacher, along with candles and flowers and incense and material offerings, as anybody who's been a teacher, whether a Dhamma teacher or a school teacher or a university teacher, the way that you please the teacher most fully is to follow the teacher's instruction, to use the teacher as an example and to follow the guidance that they give the way that's most pleasing. And that's what the Buddha said to Ananda just at the time of the Parinibbana, a very well-known story how the Buddha was lying down under the sala trees, burst into bloom out of season, and the mandarava blossoms of celestial flowers were raining down from the sky. And could hear the sound of the Gandharvas, the celestial musicians playing in the air, and incredible, extraordinary scene with the, the light of the full moon coming through the forest. Ananda says, it's amazing, it's incredible, never, you know, the sala trees are burst into bloom out of season, and the mandarava flowers are raining down from the sky, and the air is filled with beautiful music and extraordinary fragrance of these offerings. And all these people, and devas, and brahmas of all, gathered around. This is amazing, this is incredible. Never before has the Tathagata been so revered, so honored, so worshipped in such a comprehensive and glorious, beautiful way. And then the Buddha says, Indeed, Ananda, never before has the Tathagata been so revered, so honored, so respected, uh, worshipped in this way. But if you really want to respect and honor and revere the Tathagata, then the best way of doing that is to practice the Eightfold Path. <laughs> so uh, even his life force is ebbing away in the human realm, the Buddha was able to give this wonderful teaching that 
this is the best way of expressing devotion and reverence and gratitude for the teacher is to follow the teacher's advice. So I feel in that spirit that it's important for us to reflect upon that and to consider the great gratitude. I was very, very touched in Ajahn Vimala's Dhamma talk, his contacts with Lumpur Shah. There was a few tears were shed along the way during the talk with how potent and impactful the teachings of Lumpur Shah have been for him. With that great sincerity and gratitude in the heart, then what do we do with that? <laughs> what does that encourage? What does that inspire? So along with the material gestures of respect and appreciation, then ideally what that love, that gratitude does, it ignites a sense of practice, 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 <laughs> to really make use of each day, each moment, to not let the days and nights pass idly. As the, the Buddha said many times, there are these roots of trees, there are these empty huts. Meditate and do not be neglectful. Later you regret it. And I say that as much for myself as for everybody else. <laughs> it's an encouragement for me too. It's also just uh, having the daily readings. Lumpur Chah's teachings as translated by Paul Bright has been very lovely to do. And Paul's translations, very faithful. I think they're very, very accurately representing Lumpur Chah's words and the flow of ideas and associations without a lot of editing. Just very straightforward translation of Lumpur's words and getting a feel for Lumpur Chah's style of expression and the different examples he uses. One of the ones that came to mind or came up the other day and it comes to mind now is when he's talking about recognizing that this is a broken glass. He would hold up a water glass like that and say, this is a broken glass. If you can see that this is already broken, then when the day comes and the elements separate, then you won't be surprised or disappointed. You're just recognizing that's what it was on its way to do anyhow. So nothing has been lost. We're not diminished by that. That if you think this is a glass and it's always supposed to be a glass, when it breaks, when the elements separate, then your heart will feel disappointment and a sense of loss and sadness. We got news from Yom Somjit, one of the long-standing lay supporters here. She asked if she could organize a free food stall. This is one of the things that many of the branch monasteries do on these festival days at Wat Bapong for Lumpur Cha's memorial. And this is the first time they've been able to do it since COVID, so the first time in three years, usually about 40 or 50 or so different branch monasteries, they'll set up a free food stall outside of Wat Bapong and anybody who is coming to the festival, anyone from around can come along and receive offerings of mostly of food but all kinds of other things as well so uh, you know, Somjit asked could she set up an Amravati stall and so that was established by her and a, a number of friends she was very diligent very active and producing some very English items tea cakes with little union jacks in to mark the stall as well as the Amravati logo little tea cakes and Oh, yeah, offerings of fish and chips as well. And stacked up in little kind of uh, tea caddies or biscuit caddies that you get in classy tea rooms. Very, very beautifully done. Also uh, teddy bears of various different sizes to give away to the children. Apparently the queue for the teddy bears was longer than the tea cakes and the, <laughs> and the uh, other offerings. 
But very, very abundant and generous offerings, all to just to be given away, nothing is sold at all. So amongst the things that they prepared to give away to people, Somjit had organized these mugs, these tea mugs, with it written in Thai and in English on the side, this cup is already broken. Lots of these cups with these words written on them. And a few of them actually got broken in transit. They were being delivered, the handles got broken off or they got shipped. And then her little account of setting up the stall and giving all these things to everybody, she said the ones with the broken handles were the most popular. People really wanted to have the cups that were broken broken (laughs) as well as potentially broken. In terms of these kind of teachings, then we can hear this and it can be inspiring to say, oh yeah, that's a great reflection, this cup is already broken. But why would Lumpur keep emphasizing that, these teachings particularly on anicata, on uncertainty, and to say, make that point over and over again, repeatedly, daily, and in so many teachings. And again, if we really want to honor Lumpur's legacy, his life and his teachings, and really express our devotion, then what we'll do is we'll take those teachings to heart and apply them to to look at what we take to be certain. Because the point of cultivating the reflection on uncertainty is to counteract our habits of expecting that which is unstable to be stable, that which is unsatisfactory to be satisfying. That which is, say, subject to risk and change to to assume it's predictable. We know what's going to happen. We know how things are going to be. We've got a plan. So we cultivate the insight, the reflection on uncertainty, to let go of our delusions about what we take to be certain, like this body or our mental functions or our eyes, our ears, our nose, our, our mobility our dwelling places, our relationships, our possessions, all these things that we unconsciously assume to be stable and real and permanent. We recollect, enliven that recognition of this is uncertain. If you look for certainty in that which is uncertain, you must suffer. If you look for security in that which is insecure, then we have to suffer, we have to be disappointed. It's necessarily going to be that way. But the point of, and the effect of genuinely taking these teachings on uncertainty to heart, again, they lead to a great quality of simplicity, and they help the mind to recognize that which is genuinely certain, that which is Nietzsche, or that which is maybe not Nietzsche as in a thing that was formed in time that's going to last forever, but that which is the Akaliko Dhamma, the timeless Dhamma, the Pachupana Dhamma, the here and now reality, that by clearing away the habits of attachment to what is uncertain and looking for certainty in the things that are uncertain, by letting go of all of that, then that sort of clears the space for the heart to awaken to what is certain, (laughs) what is dependable, what is genuine which is the three refuges, the, the triple gem, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. We let go of the false refuges in order to clarify and awaken to the genuine refuge. That's how it works, the, the purpose of it. Because we keep looking for certainty in that which is uncertain. We keep buying into the false refuges and then being disappointed and 
and upset and let, feeling let down. They never could provide that quality of security, certainty, fullness and stability. They, they never were capable of that. So we, we kept looking in the wrong place. In this development of the Anicca Sanya, remembering this cup is already broken, this body is already broken, these eyes, these ears, this brain, these buildings are already broken. Cultivating that recollection, then we're attuning the heart to the timeless reality, the Akaliko Dhamma, as we chant the qualities of the Dhamma, Sanditiko Akaliko Ehipasiko, Upanaiko Pachatang Veditabo Vinyuhi. Apparent here and now, sanditiko, akaliko, timeless, ehipasiko, encouraging investigation, openaiko, leading inward, pachatang viditabo vinyuhi, to be realized by each wise person for themselves. So that contemplation of anicca helps the heart to awaken to that which is nietzsche, that which is timeless, that which is outside of time, the Dhamma itself. This is why. Another of Lumpucha's wonderful, very simple, clear, direct teachings uh, that I was quoted a few days ago, I think in one of the morning reflections, that a samana, nakpatibhat, one who practices dhamma, has no future. A samana has no future. Technically, a samana usually refers to a renunciate, so a nun or a monk or a monastic of some kind. But I'd say in this respect, I would understand how Lumpucha was using it. The other day I was looking at one of the verses of the Dhammapada, verse 142. It says, the Buddha points out that even if somebody is wearing elaborate clothing, even if they're decked with colorful clothing and jewelry, and even if they are a layperson with elaborate clothing, if they are one who is calm, one who is inclined towards wisdom, one who is collected, composed, one who is non-violent, then they are a true samana, a true brahmana, a true bhikkhu. Regardless of whether they are female or male or a layperson or monastic, if those qualities are there, then whether you're wearing fancy clothes or you're wearing robes and a shaved head, then one is a genuine samana, a genuine Brahmana, one who's pure of heart. That reflection, a samana, a religious aspirant or one who is committed to Dhamma practice, has no future. To the worldly mind, that can be quite intimidating, like, eek, but you know, I want to have a future. If I have no future, I'll lose everything. But what it's pointing to is that dimension of the heart, of the jitta, which is unborn, undying, that quality of the jitta, which is unborn, unoriginated, uncreated, unformed. The jitta, the fundamental nature of the jitta, of the heart, is dhamma itself. So when we take a reflection like that, a samana has no future, it's helping the heart to awaken to its own nature. That's the purpose of reflection like that, so that the heart is encouraged to recognize, to awaken to that quality of its own being. There is that aspect of the jitta which is timeless, unborn, undying, ajatang, unborn, amata, deathless. 
the Amravati, the deathless realm, is referring exactly to that quality of your own heart, our own hearts. It's not somewhere else. It's not some other kind of far-off place or special experience somewhere or you get from someone else somewhere else but it's an attribute of this very heart that's the deathless realm is an aspect of your own being when the heart awakens to its own nature when it knows its own nature as dumpo chao would describe that in the way that the dhamma is invisible to the eye it can't be heard by the ear but it does have qualities one of the ways that lumpo chao defined the Dhamma and the realization of Dhamma. Those qualities of radiance, of purity and peacefulness that are known when the heart is free of greed, hatred and delusion. The purity, radiance and peacefulness that are present. This is the felt sense of the Dhamma. There's brightness, peacefulness, quality of purity. Also, I would say that the sense of limitlessness, boundlessness, is also an aspect of that. When the heart awakens to its own nature, when it's encouraged to awaken to its own realities, to know its own nature, what arises is radiance, purity, peacefulness, limitlessness. Another of the images that Lumpocha used in the readings a few days ago, a week or two ago, was the image of a bird being released from its cage. And I would say this is a very appropriate image. The cage being the habits of self-view, self-centered thinking. When the heart lets go of its self-centered habits, eye-making and mind-making, it's like the cage is open, the door of the cage is opened, and the heart can fly free, no longer limited by those bars. It works very, very well in English, since the letter I is like a bar, I, the bars of the cage that keep the bird of the jitta enclosed and trapped and in a limited state. All that eye-making and mind-making. When there's a break in the eye-making, when the door opens, then the heart can know its own limitlessness. The jitta can know that quality of boundlessness, ananta, limitlessness, infinitude. In that respect, I think it's helpful when we take the term, you know, the, the saying of the Buddha, again in the Dhammapada, it appears in other places, he says the doors to the deathless are open. Let those who hear demonstrate their faith or act upon their faith and as most people here will know, Lumpur Tsumedo very often begins his Dhamma talks with that exact verse. Aparuta te sangamatasa dhavara ye sotawanto pamunchantu sadhang. The doors to the deathless are open. Let those who hear act upon their faith. Again, maybe it, it appears in different people's imaginations in different ways, but sometimes that the idea or the image of the doors to the deathless uh, it's like the deathless beings were presented as a kind of special place or a, a special palace or a heavenly realm with a gate that you sort of get into. The thing, the doors to the deathless are open, so you're being allowed access to this special or spiritual, a kind of a palace or a special heaven. But 
One of the things that occurs to me is that it's also, maybe it has already taken shape in your minds in this way, but to think of the doors to the deathless being open as that, with based upon that same image of being stuck in a cage, the doors to the deathless are open. is like the heart was trapped in a cage and now the doors to the deathless are open and the deathless is represented by that infinite space into which the bird can fly, the heart can abide in that limitless spaciousness. Also reminds me of, uh, maybe it's, might be considered related or not so related, but one of the verses of Rumi, the great Sufi poet, and this is probably a very poor translation, one of them that comes to mind in this respect is where he says something along the lines of, for years I lived on the brink, on the lip of insanity, desperate to find answers, knocking on the door, desperate to find answers. It opened. I found I'd been knocking from the inside. In that image of like knocking on the door, I need answers, tell me the truth, tell me the truth, but never getting an answer. Finally the door opens and then finally, oh, I was inside the truth. All the time, the answers were always here. So maybe I'll finish there for this evening, offer these thoughts for consideration.